Oh, good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I'm the host of the program. I am joining you from the Simon, I'm going to say sultry. That is how hot the air is here. It's basically shimmery to the touch. Uh, the the sultry area, the humid area of Davenport, Florida, at the beautiful Bahama Bay. Uh, I am being joined, of course, by Simon Erickson and Dana Abramovitz, both in Houston, Texas. How far apart are you guys? Maybe a handful of miles here? A couple of miles, but also sultry air here in Houston, too, with the humidity as well, Dan. We feel you. And my apologies for the excess water. But Simon, I got something I haven't had in two years. I have a cold. And I know in this day and age, like you go in any place and you cough mildly and you basically have to pull out a scroll that details that you don't have COVID. But I have your your plain old fashioned like post-nasal drip cold that's just like very minor, but it's super throat irritating. So I'm going to go through many bottles of water during the show. Dana Bravovitz, you are the healthiest person I know. When is the last time you had a cold? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I, so I, I run a business. I'm not allowed to get sick. <laughs> I, I remember. I remember those days. And we're actually going to talk about that in the second half of the show. In the second half of the show, we're going to turn to Twitter. And I asked people for the best advice, financial or business, they've ever gotten from a friend or relative. And sometimes it's not actual advice. Uh, in my case, it was sort of the work ethic I saw. Like I didn't know that everybody's dad uh, didn't leave the house at 630 in the morning go to work, which was two miles away, and come home at 5.30 at night, and then on Saturday get to sleep in till 7 because we didn't open till 8, and then come home at 3 o'clock. I didn't know everybody's grandfather didn't have a work phone at their kitchen table, so if people didn't answer the phone quickly enough on a weekend or an afternoon if he randomly was home, which almost never happened, where he would just pick up the phone. I didn't know that wasn't normal. So the work ethic I, I learned, we're going to talk about that later, but our big topic today, this is one you've wanted us to talk about. This is what we love as we go your questions and comments. And Simon, there's some reasons why we brought this up, but uh, SPACs have been, the, that's been the word of the year. If we were going to give a word of the year, SPACs. And this is, of course, uh, the alternate way to go public, not the weird little pants. Those are SPATs. Uh, so we want to be careful there. But our topic here is, have SPACs become less attractive? Before we get into that, Simon, why don't you give us the 10,000 viewers, what is a SPAC? What do those letters even stand for? Uh, and how is it different from an IPO? Yeah. And thanks for the clarification, Dan. You know, we are talking about SPACs, not specs, not Spock from Star Trek. You know, this is about these special purpose acquisition companies that are all the rage I'm coming public in the last couple of years. Uh, a SPAC is, a, is an alternative to the traditional IPO. Uh, some fun facts that the number of SPAC IPOs in 2021, even though we're only halfway through the year so far, is already 50% higher than it was in 2020. And 2020 was even double what it was in 2019. And so this is really a, a huge developing trend of companies saying, hey, I want to do the SPAC. I'm going to raise money this way rather than the traditional IPO that we've gotten used to. And so I'd like to spend the first part maybe just chatting about what a SPAC is and how it's different and why companies might be interested in this. Yeah, let me jump in a little bit. These are often called blank check companies. So what does that mean? That means that let's say Simon and I decide we want to invest in companies that have a uh, alternative outdoor experiences. So uh, zip lines and, and man-made natural water slides, who knows? And we go, okay. And then we get uh, someone who's well-known. We get uh, Tony Hawk, he joins our team and he puts in $100 million. And then we go out and raise half a billion dollars. And we say, we have this ready to go public company and we're gonna go after a private company. And we're gonna say, okay, you're worth this much. 
here's that money. Here's money for your balance sheet. Uh, now you are public, and there's very little scrutiny with this. Uh, am I getting correct, Simon? Yeah, that's absolutely right, Dan. I like the analogy, and I love throwing Tony Hawk into the description of it as well, even better. Uh, I tend to think of it as a swimming pool. This is the analogy that I've come up with. It's not perfect, but it's the one that I'm going to roll with anyway, so forgive me. Uh, say that you've got a great kiddie pool in your backyard, right? It, it serves your purposes. You jump in the kiddie pool. It's great for us in Houston, probably great for Davenport, Florida, right? It's sweltering hot outside. Go jump in the swimming pool. You're totally happy. But what if you get approached by someone else, a SPAC financial sponsor, say, that says, hey, that's a great swimming pool, kiddie pool you've got, but I can build you a much, much larger swimming pool that you'd love even more. And you get more space to swim around in this swimming pool, but you just got to share a little bit of it with my investors here on the side. And we might even bring in some other investors as well, corporations or larger companies, and they're going to have a part of the pool too. But this is a much better swimming pool than you've got with your kiddie pool in the backyard right now. And that's kind of how a SPAC operates, Dan. The private companies have got the kiddie pool that are upgrading. They get a higher valuation. They're splitting the ownership of the business with financial sponsors who do the deal itself. Sometimes they bring in corporations or other companies that want to get in on this as well. And then, as you said, they've got their own investors. The SPAC itself is holding funds that investors like you or I could get in as a public shell company as well. So much larger swimmer pool at the end of the day. It's appealing for everybody as long as everyone gets along. Yeah, so there is actually an actual swimming pool about 20 yards behind me. So if you hear people <laughs> screaming, there are lots of kids out playing at the swimming pool. And I actually saw a story today about a potential SPAC that is the Airbnb of swimming pools, where if you have a swimming pool in your backyard, you can rent it out. Of course, you're also encouraged to get uh, very expensive insurance through them because there's heavy liability. And you can make ten dollars to $20,000 a month. And that sounds ridiculous. But if you live someplace like Houston, Texas, or in my case, West Palm Beach, Florida, and you're the rare person who doesn't have access to a pool, oh boy, do you want a pool. And paying $50, $75 for a couple of hours in a pool seems delightful. That's the type of company that needs capital to grow. It's a marketing play. You can, you can prove the business model pretty quickly. But if it gets three, $400 million, it can accelerate. So that's the positive of what a SPAC could be. It could take a small company or a growing company and give it cash quickly, allow it to grow. Before we get into how a SPAC can be very, very good for the company, I want to talk about some of the risks to investors. So when you do a traditional IPO, you do something called an S1. An S1 is kind of like a financial Bible. Now, I will point out that an S1 is like an idealized document. It's like your mortgage application. Like on your mortgage application, you don't point out like, yeah, I just paid off all those credit card bills yesterday. You just like, you're saying like, I have no credit card bills. Like you are very, very careful in how you present it. That's what an S1 is. So they go out on what's called a roadshow. And basically the CEO, the CFO, they appear in front of bankers and they say, hey, here's why you should get your clients to invest in us. It's great. Uh, and it should be worth this and that. When you have a SPAC, Simon, you basically put out what, like a two-page document, a postcard? Like there is not a ton of information that comes out. No, no, out it's still a, a, there's still a regulated SEC document. Prospectus goes out for a SPAC as well. But it is a little different than the traditional IPO, like you mentioned, Dan. Um, maybe to demonstrate this, let's go back in time, right? Let's hop in a time machine back to 2012 when Facebook did its traditional IPO. Right? And this was a really big deal. I mean, do you guys remember what a big deal it was when Facebook went public you know, and Mark Zuckerberg was saying, hey, this is the largest valuation we've ever had for an American publicly listed company at an IPO. $104 billion, right? So this is really, really big deal. And Facebook hires underwriters to say, hey, we're going to sell shares to you for $38 a share, 
And we're going to issue 480 million of these and raise $18 billion, $18 billion with a B of capital they put on their balance sheet to start building up the business. And so JP Morgan, uh, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, all the underwriters said, great, okay, Mark, that's probably higher than we were probably going to pay for, for this. But, you know, we know you're onto something here. We're going to give you a $38 a share. And Zuckerberg also says, hey, I'm also only going to give you guys a 1% underwriter's fee, a percentage of the gross proceeds of the amount that's raised in the IPO, typically 5 to 7%. Facebook says, we're really onto something big. We're going to give you 1%. All the underwriters say fine. And the reason that I'm, that I'm bringing all this up, Dan, is because on the very first day of trading, we've almost gotten used to that IPO pop, right? Where you see Facebook trade on the first day, it goes up from $38 a share to like $75 a share or $100 a share. It's just like that's what we've gotten used to in IPOs. But that's money that's left on the table that is not collected by Facebook by selling at $38 a share to its underwriters. That is the market value in excess, the premium of having your shares pub publicly traded that you're missing out on a traditional IPO. And so I bring up the example of Facebook because on the very first day of trading, Facebook shares closed at $38 and I believe it was 24 cents, so 23 cents. So there was no IPO pop. Facebook brought all of it into the underwriters of what they paid them up front. There wasn't the pop and they paid less of an underwriter's fee. This is a more efficient way of raising capital. And other companies kind of use that as a model of saying, how can we get away from these limitations of a traditional IPO? And that's what's really pushed uh, the SPAC movement, which was which was highly influenced by Sir Richard Branson bringing Virgin Galactic uh, public through a SPAC last year. A lot of others kind of use that as the new model of how they want to raise capital. It's also worth pointing out, and apologies if I have some internet issues. I am. Uh, it is very, very hot, and that appears to be affecting how the waves travel here. Uh, but that being said, Facebook was widely considered a failure. For two years, that was written about as a disaster because people put all this money in and they didn't get these big returns. What happened with Facebook also was they had to revise their numbers about a week before they came out. And that was considered a little shady, what actually was the ethically correct thing to do. They also had a trading glitch at the beginning that uh, was, based, was due to volume. It was an unprecedented volume. That also created the impression that the, the scales were weighted, that things were going on. So Facebook was wildly successful for Facebook, and that's actually what you want an IPO to be. As a shareholder, you want the company to get as much money as it can and for its returns. And I promise, we'll work Dana Abramovitz in later. Uh, she, she's going to be a big part of the show here. Uh, but you want the company to get as much money, spend it well, and your returns might be three to five years down the road. Simon, how does a SPAC do that differently? Yeah, great points, Dan. Great segue, too. So now we have a financial shell company, right? You have a financial sponsor that has a publicly traded, you, you can buy shares of it. There's a ticker that's publicly traded on exchanges where you can buy into the SPAC. You can put your money into this piggy bank that is SPAC investors that then that financial sponsor, he or she will go out and do a deal on your behalf. They'll go out in this instance uh, with the company that you that we've started here, Dan, uh, doing Tony Hawk stuff, outside stuff, the SPAC sponsor would, would come to you and say, hey, I've raised $200 million in this shell company. I would like to use that to buy 10, 20, 49% of your existing shares out there. And we're going to transfer it directly. We don't care what the climate's like in the, in the IPO market. We don't care what public investors or underwriters are going to do. This is going to be a set valuation terms that we're going to give you, and it's going to inject that directly. 
there are some considerations that I think we're going to get to in a minute here when we talk about the risks. But the benefit is um, you actually are, are much more capital efficient in raising money from a SPAC because you kind of get to set the valuation, you set the terms, and that money goes straight onto your balance sheet as a private company. Yeah. So Dana owns a fitness studio. And if Dana decided she wanted to sell half her fitness studio, she doesn't let arbitrary bankers decide what the price might be. She makes the best deal possible. So that's great for the company. Here's the potential negative. A SPAC or an IPO, but it's harder with an IPO, can be used to transfer risk from venture capitalists to individual investors. And what do I mean? Most, not most, many SPACs that come out are absolutely IPO-able companies and they're taking a better slash easier route. I have seen quite a few, specifically in my space of media, where a bunch of companies that could be profitable but aren't going to be huge growth engines go, geez, how do we get $300 million? Well, if BuzzFeed and The Athletic, and I love The Athletic, I don't mean to diss any of these companies. If you roll up a bunch of these companies, well, they'll be back office. Well, getting rid of some accountants isn't going to make these companies high growth companies. They're, you know, Maybe they can co-market and there's some efficiencies, but you do see, and this is a shark tank term, you see a lot of good businesses use SPACs as a way to cash people out when there's not a lot of upside for investors. So that's where you need to be careful and where you need to evaluate uh, you know, what are the long-term opportunities. We see a ton of questions and comments coming in. We will take them uh, towards the end of the segment. So Simon, the positive is you get the most money possible. The negative is you might not be buying an actual company. As an investor, how do you counteract this? I know I have a strategy for it, but how would you counteract buying into a company that sounds good. Wow, it's BuzzFeed meets The Athletic being bought by The New York Times. It's like, eh, maybe not so great. Uh, how do you go around that one? Yeah. And Dan, I should dispel a lot of kind of the adjectives that are used to describe SPACs out in the media right now, right? SPACs are not good or bad. Uh, they're just more complex and different than what we've gotten used to. And so back to that swimming pool, you've got to know who you're swimming with, right? Are the kids that are coming to the pool from the uh, from the investors, are they terrors that are throwing things at you? And now you don't like being a part of this business with them. I mean, a big part of this is the terms of the deal itself. Um, for one, there's a lot of money chasing after companies right now. Interest rates are very low. Um, a lot of financial deal makers are, are looking to SPACs as a way that they can pad their pockets. And they're giving too high evaluations for unsustainable companies. And so one thing you should really be watching if you're looking into a SPAC is if you see that hockey stick, right? If you see the projections of, of the revenue and the EBITDA, a lot of times this isn't just a year or two out, Dan. They're forecasting out like 2027, 2028 and saying, hey, we might be very small today. You might be paying 200 times sales today, but look at the potential as this ramps up. Uh, that is very, very hard to do. It is very, very hard to grow exponentially for a five-year period all at the same time. So I think that you have to have um, kind of a boulder of salt when you look at a lot of those projections that'll, that most of those companies are not going to reach those. Yeah, and, and the reality is, yeah, go ahead. We, we don't invest in most publicly traded companies. Correct. We do our due diligence. So I don't generally invest in IPOs or SPACs, but here's my, not that I don't like the companies, I'm going to wait until I've seen two quarters of reported earnings, gotten a feel for the CEO. But in my case, and Simon, I'm going to let you jump in here. And Dana, feel free to weigh in here. I think there are exceptions. So if a leader I truly love creates a SPAC with the idea that he's going to use it to buy companies that he's then going to run or, or be a, a key advisor to, I might buy that on faith in the person. So if John Ledger, who left T-Mobile as CEO, uh, decided 
uh, or Patrick Doyle, who ran Domino's for many years, created SPACs in an area I felt comfortable investing in, I'd probably buy their SPAC day one because I trust their long-term track record. I think the same could be said with some of the serial investors who are backing SPACs. You know, if you want to back Richard Branson, I don't think that's absolutely crazy. So in some cases, Simon, we're kind of throwing our rules out, right? Yes, the financial sponsor themselves really matters. And Dana, please jump in if you'd like me to not monopolize this conversation here. It's, it's um, all good. I'm, I'm sitting here nodding my head because I'm totally <laughs> Uh, Richard Branson, you know, and, and Chamath Palahapatiya, which is the financial sponsor he worked with at Social Capital. Uh, Chamath is a very different type of investor than Bill Ackman is, right? Bill Ackman has been an activist investor that was trying to wring out synergies from very mature operating companies. Chamath is investing in the space economy, you know, and climate change and stuff that's that's very less established today. So who is the person that's doing the deal on your behalf and what kind of companies are they looking for is, uh, is very important. And there's just one more thing that I maybe want to call a lot of investor attention to that's very, I think it's something we should really put a lot of scrutiny under, is the dilution that is inherent in the deals that are being done for a SPAC. Uh, what I mean by dilution is when you're buying in a SPAC, most of them are, are uh, being sold at $10 a share if you're buying into the shell company. When it actually completes the merger, a lot of times there are sweeteners for the deal where there will be additional shares that are issued to the private company that agrees to come public to the financial sponsor who does the deal and to you as a SPAC investor where you can get awarded more shares if the price hits a certain threshold, right? And these are known as warrants. Those are typically included when you're buying into a stack in the, into a SPAC in the first place. But we've really got to pay attention to how diluted is the, is the pie going to get and who's getting the benefit of those warrants? Are we just loading up the financial sponsor that does the deal with a whole bunch of warrants if it goes through? Are we giving it all back to the private company where they say, okay, yeah, I'll go, I'll agree to go public with you. And if it hits this price, then we all make a ton of money and cash out. Or are you getting a fair and equitable part of that as well as an investor in a SPAC? I mean, all of these are considerations. You can't just say, okay, everybody's got the same terms for every one of these SPAC deals. They're all very different and it could make a huge impact on your returns. Yeah, this is an area we have to do your due diligence. And some of that is the financial terms. Some of that is the company. And I think you need to remember these are structured, so your payoff as an investor is going to be long-term. Uh, we see a bunch of questions. A lot of the questions in the queue are about specific companies, and I'll leave it to Simon and Dana. If they, if, they, if they know any of those companies, tell me which ones, and I'm happy to talk about it. But I don't want to introduce sort of discussions on which SPAC is better than the other, but I do see some questions I am going to take in a broader sense as we move through. But Simon, the SEC has actually cracked down on this a little bit. So SPACs, we were at a, a blistering pace. And it actually slowed down in April. And the reason for that is the SEC is looking at uh, whether banks are sometimes on multiple sides of the deal. This happens in IPOs too. It's called a Chinese wall, where part of the bank is taking it public and telling you it's great. The other part is analyzing it and deciding if it's great. And they're not supposed to interact. We, we worked at a company that had a Chinese wall for part of its business. It's not an exact science. Like I, I had coffee with someone on the other side of the Chinese wall on every visit. Now, did we talk about things we shouldn't? No. But could we have? Absolutely. And if we stood to make millions, maybe we would have. Like, so just, just to, so what is the SEC doing? And is this going to long-term uh, slow down the SPAC market? Or is this just sort of a reasonable regulatory bump in the road? I, I think it's a regulatory bump in the road that's very necessary. It's going to cut out a lot of the bad actors that don't want to do their homework and actually have kind of a methodical process behind their forecasting. 
Uh, right. So you can't I mean, like it's less stringent on the, on the forecasting of revenues and of, of EBITDA for SPACs than it is for um, for operating companies where you can show, OK, here's our cash flows. Here's, you know, here's our operating history. It's more OK if you're a SPAC that's going for the gold, but you don't have a whole lot of history to, to raise money that way. And that's why you see those hockey sticks. That's why you see such frothy projections a lot of the time. And I think that uh, what you say is very true, that there needs to be a little bit more uh, attention on, on the actual business itself rather than just the projections. And the other thing is related that I've, that I've been watching with the SEC guidelines for this and the statement they made back in April was the uh, way that they're, they're classifying warrants. So again, back to, hey, we get more issue, more, more equity. I'll start that over. More shares of this company issued if it hits a certain price. That needs to be tied to the fundamental business itself. Right. Like you can't say, hey, we're going to issue more shares of Facebook if Apple's shares go up to $18 a share or whatever it is. It needs to be tied directly to the company that would be registered and listed on an American exchange, an equity exchange. And a lot of times there were other factors, characteristics of the SPAC, of the financial sponsor, of the, uh, the investment vehicle that were not tied to the operating company. And the SEC says, hey, we're going to be taking a much closer look at this. And a lot of those uh, creative deal makers kind of said, "Okay, maybe we should go back and do a little bit more homework, make sure that we're compliant." More regulation is not necessarily a bad thing. And again, when you look at sort of SPAC projections, it's a little bit like being a venture capitalist yourself. And you know, Simon, you've worked on business plans. I've worked on Dana. You've worked on business plans. When you write a business plan, the first three years are like your realistic growth because that's the where the money you actually get is going to go. Your year four and your year five, you're like, well, I'm six franchises on Mars. Like, like I've done it a bunch of times. And that's just how it works. Everyone knows those numbers aren't real. Uh, you know, they're they're absolute best case scenario projections. That's kind of how you have to look at some of this and be wary of uh, let's call it industry opportunity, where someone just says, "Wow, sports betting is going to be huge. We're sports betting. Invest in us." That is, I hate to pick on that particular space, cannabis. Uh, you know, the, the space industry, just because Simon and I create uh, Tony Hawkins is even more money and we create Space Hawk and we say we're going to focus on uh, unique experiences in space doesn't mean we're actually going to create a rocket ship or, or make a space skateboard, whatever it's going to be. Uh, before we seg into some of your questions, and we got a few we're going to take. I wanted to ask Dana, we promised on Twitter that we would answer this. So if you ask us questions on Twitter and we promise we'll answer them on the show, we do that. Uh, Dana, you've been asked a lot about ShareCare. That's a digital health company. I don't know much about it. Uh, they just completed a SPAC. Uh, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, well, so, you know, a lot of the stuff that that we've been talking about, um, you know, so, you know, I've been thinking a lot about digital um, health companies. I used to work at a digital health company. Um, I'm, you know, doing research for a report that I'll be putting out um, through Seven Investing on digital health companies, um, and you know, it's, it's it's really hard, right? Because you you have this, you know, a lot of times it's just an app, right? And you know, a lot of times companies are, you know, like is it a company or you know, is, is it a business or is it just a product, right? And you know, with um, with apps in a lot of digital health. Um, you know, people expect to have an app for free, um, right? So you have to, you know, really look at the business model. So, um, you know, I think that, you know, you had, you had mentioned, you know, like, you know, how do you take a, a company that's kind of growing a little bit, but how do you get them to that accelerated growth that a company would normally do, you know, an IPO to like get that, those funds. And so, you know, I think a lot of digital health companies, it, you know, in order to get that um, amount of money for that growth, 
SPACs would be um, the way to go. And so, you know, I, we're, we're starting to see that a lot um, for digital health companies. Um, and so, you know, like with ShareCare, you know, it kind of like sneaks up, right? So, you know, like you don't get to see, you know, all the, the things that you would normally see if there was a roadshow and really, you know, got to understand um, what was going on. Um, and so I think that's kind of a little bit, um, you know, concerning for me, um, you know, uh, ShareCare has been around since 2012. Their leadership is is great. You know, very experienced. Um, their CEO um, was the founder of WebMD, and you know, so sold that. You know, very successful there. There are a lot of really great people on their team that you know I know and have worked with before. Um, you know, it's it's hard for me to to know their their business model and how they're going to make money and you know if those you know those hockey sticks are, are really going to you know uh come to fruition um you know it, it's you know as we've been talking you know, i've been you know i i kind of um came to finance through a vc route you know thinking about a vc and and uh, these um these financial institutions kind of put you in that that chair of of a vc and and is this something that you want to invest in not really knowing um, as much. So, you know, I, I'm a little bit weary of, um, of, of share care. You know, like I think it's, I think it's a good company, but I, I don't know, like for the long term, um, uh, if that, um, you know, I, I think that the, we're, we're, we still need to wait a little bit longer um, to see that long-term investment. That, yeah. That's, yeah. that's my take on it. It's important to remember that a great product isn't always a great investment. Uh, and I think I'm feeding back through Dana there. Um, and that's a case where I mentioned The Athletic before. I check The Athletic 15 times a day. It's a great sports magazine featuring many of the best display sports writers around the country. But their best case scenario is subscriptions and advertising through their, their free podcast makes them profitable and sustainable. As an investor, that's not a great business. Uh, we're going to take some of your questions and comments. There's a lot of comments on specific companies, and I like to think we know a lot, but we haven't worked up every SPAC that's out there. So apologies if I ignore some of those. I want to take the second comment from Max Lucas, and I'll let Simon read that one because I know he wanted to answer it. Uh, thanks, Sam. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, Max says that I probably heard two to three hours of coverage about PSTH. That is Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. That's Bill Ackman's SPAC that he's raising money in and still can't get all the dynamics of it straight. Any clarity here? Yes, exactly. That's exactly the point is that it, nobody understands what's going on with the details of those warrants, right? Pershing Square and Bill Ackman have gotten so creative on the way that, they're, that they've structured this that uh, the parent company of the Universal Group, Music Group that they were trying to acquire, or at least uh, merge with through the SPAC, was saying, hey, wait a minute, we've got some, some basically barriers in place that would prevent this from going through as an ordinary SPAC. And they only wanted to sell 10% of the company, and then Ackman kind of got creative on kind of how they were organizing things. And they walked away from that deal. If you saw recently, what was it, Dan? Was it a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that Bill Ackman just said, hey, you know, this is not in the interest of the SPAC holders. We're going to dissolve the SPACs and then not go through with this deal. So they knew that might happen. There was actually, it's actually happening for regulatory reasons. When they wrote that contract, Ackman wrote in and said, if this doesn't change, I will do this with essentially a private entity. So this wasn't a shock, but you do want to be, be to watch when you have a big name like Bill Ackman, if he walks away from something, that could have been a scenario where someone else stepped in. 
doesn't make it a bad investment, but you still want to know why. We're going to take as many of your questions and comments here. I think this is a high interest topic. So if uh, if we punt on the uh, the second half of the show, that's an evergreen topic. So I'm more I'm more than happy to do that. But we've got uh, I want to take Mike Fee's comment first, and then we'll go to Silver Traps for Dana. But feel free to get your questions and comments in. Uh, the EV industry also has highly exaggerated projections. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to call the specific company into uh, you know into question, but uh, we have a lot of companies that have a sizzle reel and a brochure and a promise of what they're going to do, and then they take broad projections of the EV market. Like, sure, all cars will be EV by 2035 or whatever the numbers is, but that's kind of like saying everybody eats. I have a restaurant. Like I'll I'll soon get forty percent of the food market. Simon, you want to weigh in here? This is this is to me one of the biggest problems with SPACs is that it's so easy to hype them up. I mean, I agree with that, Dan. I mean, there's there's so much money chasing after these trends right now. Whether or not they're sustainable is questionable. EV is electric vehicles. Uh, the best thing you can hope for if you are an unsustainable hype fueled company is to get included in an ETF. Right, where there's dumb money that's just funneling money to you uh, for the, sh- the share price of your shares, but you don't have a sustainable business. It goes back to what Dana said just a minute ago about how important it is to look at the history of the people that are running these companies. Right? Are they just in it because they're trying to grab a bunch of money and then cash out? Or are they actually experts in their field who are saying, hey, SPAC's a more efficient way for me to raise capital, and I'm going to use that on your behalf to grow my business 10x. I mean, I, I still believe, I personally believe that, that there are some real, real winners that are going uh, public through SPACs right now. It's just not that everybody's going to be a, a winner. You know, we got to look for the diamonds out there in the, in the field, uh, diamonds in the rough, I guess I should say, that are, that are going to win from this because they're out there and we can find them as investors. But let's not just assume that every SPAC is going to be a, a hockey stick uh, is going to come true. And you need to believe the path forward, not the story. A lot of people get mad at me for saying I don't like DraftKings. Uh, and that, that came public via SPAC. And I see a path where DraftKings could be successful. I'm not saying I'm 100% right on this one. But I also see a lot of paths where the big casinos crush DraftKings because DraftKings have nothing I want in terms of a loyalty program. So if I'm betting on DraftKings and then Caesar says, you can bet with me and you'll get tier loyalty rewards. What are tier loyalty rewards? Those are the rewards that I get permanent for the year benefits like access to special lounges or $100 dining credits. Well, sending me a DraftKings t-shirt or a a meet and greet with, you know, some low-level boxer or whatever it is, that's not the same as cutting the line at every show in Vegas or getting rooms or whatever it is. So you can like a company. You can like the business it's in. You could also be very wary. I'm going to take one next for Dana. Uh, Can I comment on that real quick, Dana? Yeah. I mean, DraftKings is a perfect example, right? This is uh, the financial sponsor for that was previously CEO of MGM, right? And uh, this was the same team that raised money for them. They always have Eagle in the name of it. I think it was Flying Eagle at the time or Diamond Eagle, maybe. Uh, Now they've got Soaring Eagle, which is bringing Ginkgo Bioworks uh, public through a SPAC. Ginkgo Bioworks, of course, DNA synthesis is a really hot topic. I'm sure Dana and I could chat about this on a future show. But printing from the DNA level for microorganisms to do specific tasks, kind of like programming life, like we programmed computers to do. Really, really cool company. Really, really cool leadership team out there at Ginkgo. $15 billion valuation, right? So we've got the ultimate knock it out of the park if you can incentive. The SPAC sponsor is highly incentivized if they double their share price within 90 to 180 days after going public. Um, Some of that makes me raise an eyebrow, even with a great leadership team, if this makes sense for me as an investor who's getting in a little late to the party. 
it's like any other investment. You have to look at the overall situation. There are IPOs that come out that you look and go, wait a minute, is this just so all the insiders can cash out? And sometimes that's that's the case. Like if, if I'm investing in an IPO, I want to make sure the CEO sell a couple million dollars so you're set for life. That that I'm totally cool with. That's a, that's that's sensible strategy. But if you're selling 98% of your holdings, that's a real, real problem. <laughs> now, look deeper because sometimes there's reasons that has to happen. So make sure you understand that could be a, 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 a tax transaction and he buys it back a week later. Like you, you want to fully understand what's happening. Uh, we appreciate the so many people saying hello. There's so many great comments. Uh, I wanted to get to Silvertrap's question for Dana. Uh, and I also wanted to thank uh, Ermis Kaplan for, for saying hello and being excited to see Dana on the program. Well, we're excited to see you as well. I, I hope this is a friend of yours, Dana, or maybe it's just a friend of the family here at 7 Investing. Uh, so Sam, if you want to pull up uh, Silvertrap's question for Dana. Uh, thoughts on Talkspace, mental health company that came through the SPAC route. I love the idea of this company, Dana. I don't know the business of it. Yeah. So um, they're actually really well rated. Um, you know, so if you look at a lot of the mental health companies and, you know, there are like 20,000 of them, um, you know, it's it's nice to have, um, you know, in a highly stig stigmatized um area to be able to like have kind of discrete conversations over text and you know a video conferencing with a therapist um and so talkspace i mean like that's what they do is is they help connect you to a licensed therapist um so that you can you know uh, they have everything ranging from you know couples therapy to psychiatry so you know where you actually um need medication for um your treatments and you know, again, though, you know, like a, a digital health company um, that, you know, can't quite grow enough, you know, or, or would raise enough money um, through an IPO. So, you know, is able to um, go public through, um, you know, the, the SPAC merger. Um, you know, I, I do think this is a good company uh, because it is being utilized, right? Like, pe you know, people really like it. And and we've talked before, um, you know, if you're a subscriber of 7investing um, and you read our recommendations, a lot of times we're talking about, you know, the net promoter scores of companies and, you know, companies that, you know, are really well liked um, by their users um, doing really well. And so, you know, like I, I think with Talkspace is, is they are in that same situation. So that is a perfect segue because usually between segments, uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about subscribing to 7investing, all the benefits of that. I would tell you that, uh, that I'm so excited about my pick next month, which in a weird way isn't that well rated with consumers, but is actually beloved in another way. And I actually explained that in my pick uh, which Simon really helped me add, add depth and, and detail to. But that's not what I want to talk about now because we did something different this month. We write what we call a perspectives article every month. That is Simon poses a question to us and all seven of us, Simon included, uh, give our answer. And our answers could be very, very different. So it might be, uh, what's your path to identifying a 10-bagger? Uh, this month, Simon, what was the question and what was the unique twist you gave us uh, that we've never done before that's caused all sorts of fun for us to figure out the process here? Oh, yeah. Thanks very much for the chance to talk about this. And something I'm really excited about. You know, every month, like you said, we pose a question to the team and it highlights how diverse our team is, right? How we are all different investors. We think about the market differently. We look for different things. Um, and it kind of frames <laughs> the different perspectives from seven lead advisors. And so the question this month 
is one I was pretty excited about, which is who do you think is the most likely publicly traded acquisition target in the market? Who is most likely to go out there and get acquired by someone else? And other than that, there were no more, there were no other limitations, right? It could be a small cap company, company, could be a cap company. I mean, who is in the sweet spot that you think is going to be acquired by a much larger company? Well, cash is cheap and everybody's talking about SPAC IPOs and people coming public and making acquisitions. And so what we've done is we've picked seven companies that we believe are great acquisition targets. And we're going to publish one per day for the next week, starting tomorrow, Dan, to our Twitter, to at 7investing on our Twitter feed. And we're also going to publish all of them tomorrow uh, to 7investing.com. They'll, they'll appear as articles on our 7investing homepage. But I know that we always love to talk about this, right? Like who is an acquisition target out there? Why would they be acquired? Who would acquire them? I mean, all of this is kind of fun stuff at least for me as an investor to think about. And uh, we're, we're really kind of kind of excited to show you who we've come up with. Dana's shaking her head, but I actually really like the company you came up with too, Dana. And there's also a second part of this for members only. Uh, Simon, I don't know how much you want to give away publicly. Go, there, go ahead, so yeah, I, go ahead. Yeah, yeah so, so we also wrote a second piece that says, okay, if that deal happens, if the company we say would be acquired, who does that most affect that's on our scorecard? So we actually give, this is an, an interesting bit of speculation for members. Obviously, a lot has to happen. But we're telling you, if blank buys blank, this is going to impact this company we've recommended in which way. That was a really actually fun exercise to do because you had to go look through the scorecard. And no, it was hard for me too, Dan. And we both, um, it, it was a challenge. Uh, but that's just the kind of thing now for members. Is that a core product? No, of course not. Our, our picks, our, our videos, our, our company updates. But is it a really awesome, fun second piece to read? And I will be honest, like I could read these before they come out. Sometimes I, I edit our stuff. And in this case, I'm really glad that I was actually out. And I haven't read any of these because I'm really looking forward to reading it along with the members. I know mine is something I truly believe will happen. But I also spent five years believing Amazon was going to buy Radio Shack. I, I probably am on the record of saying that was going to happen on 200 separate podcasts. I was spectacularly wrong. I think it still makes sense, even though Radio Shack doesn't exist anymore. So I'm excited about this. And if you want to get in on both parts of the action and get in our new picks, which come out August 1st. August 1st, if you told me it was 10 days from now, I'd believe you. If you told me it was six months from now, I would believe you. But apparently it is about 10 days from now. Uh, that is when our new picks come out, and we have an amazing array of picks. Uh, and I mentioned I have a pick that's a company I don't actually use. Uh, I've been there, but it is not a company that I am the core customer for, and I absolutely love it. And I will say, and this won't be reflected in my, my write-up, but Matt Cochran really helped me, along with Simon, develop my thinking on this. And months of just chatting about it over dinners and, and what we liked got me to the point of, wait a minute. It doesn't matter that I don't want to shop there. They don't want me to shop there either. Like, like you know, that's you know, and not in like a country's club in Georgia kind of sense. Like in a you know, in a in a in a I am not their target demographic. Sorry, George, I just drove through you, and I'm teasing a little bit. Uh, Info is investing for hate mail for Dan Klein. <laughs> weird, weird to have rest stops with a smoke shop. I've never been driving and thought, you know, what I want a, a brisket. But you know that said, I I get it. Uh, you you love pecans, you love peaches. I was making a, an old school '80s masters joke there about who can go and who cannot go. Apologies to anyone that might offend. But that being said, our picks come out, and for you to get those picks, you have to be a member. How do you get, become a member? Uh, the easiest way to do it is go to sevininvesting.com/slash subscribe. There you'll be asked to sign up, 
and you can pay us either $49 a month. That is American dollars. We, we can translate for whatever country you're in, but it, it boils down to American dollars. Or, and this is where the deal is. This is where, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like the guy that sells you Flex Seal, but the real deal here is if you pay $399 a year, we don't have to worry about it. You make the one payment and you get tens of thousands. I, I don't know, a lot of value. I, it, we get in trouble if we speculate as to how much value it actually is. But it's a lot of value. It's a lot of fun. We do our members only call uh, where you can ask us any questions. And usually that's about stocks. But if, if you want to ask Steve about his rib recipe, he'll probably answer you. Um, we try, like you can see just watching this show, we have fun with each other. Uh, and I think we have fun with our members. You see, as we interact with people who have, uh, you know, are active contributors to this show, that we just really like being here. And I think that's really valuable, a valuable part of our service, because I buy most of the seven investing recommendations. I, I think a lot of us do that and limited almost by, well, I'm not going to buy $2 slices of things. So I have to somewhat pick and choose. And as I've said many a time, I picked and choose. Uh, I generally buy Max and Dana's suggestions because they're the ones that are least like what I buy. We're going to get back to your comments. Simon, you, I know you want to take one from Max Lucas. Did I ask that one or did I forget and, and not get to it? I think we did, though. I wanted to uh, highlight Silvertrap's comment, too, about loving seven investing. I, I love when we make get comments like this one. Sam, can we put it? Yeah, I love seven investing. You're doing a fantastic job. I don't have the cash to buy all seven, but I try to buy a couple lifetime memory. Thank you. Thank you, Silvertrap, for the support. Uh, like you said, you know, we, we have a diversity of picks. I, I would go so far as to say that I would bet that everyone on this program, there's at least one company that we're recommending next month that you haven't heard of before. Uh, if you've heard of all seven of them, I'm very impressed because we've got some some hidden gems coming out in the uh, the next round of recommendations on August first. I don't think I've ever heard of all seven of them in the in the <laughs> yeah. being here since October. Uh, Silvertrap also points out that that company to be acquired, and I'm mentioning this because I know Simon has shared this on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, Simon shared a, a a chain on Twitter where he pointed out that Fastly hired a CFO who specializes in being acquired. That is the depth of analysis you get from this team. Like that is not something I would have known in a million years. On the other hand, if a retailer brought in like a turnaround expert as their chief marketing officer, or someone whose past ten stops has resulted in you know bankruptcy or packaging the chain to be sold elsewhere, that's the type of thing. By following specific industries, we give you that insight. Uh, I want to take. Uh, the, the mortgage comment from Max Lucas uh, to sort of close this out, unless anyone jumps in with anything great. Uh, Max says, I know in mortgage, Max works in the mortgage space. Uh, we are seeing high net worth people getting loans because they want hard assets and debt because of inflation fears. Uh, is the same happening to drive up private business valuations? I'll speak to this a little bit, Simon. Um, it's absolutely driving up real estate valuations. And I would assume it's driving up uh, predictable businesses. So if you wanted to buy, say, a McDonald's franchise that very predictably on $3 million a year produces $400,000 in cash flow, you might be paying higher and higher premiums for that. We've seen that at very heavy cash flow times where like people wanting to buy predictable, set it and forget it, internet businesses. And you know, I'm sitting in a condo and I've been pretty forthcoming. We, we bought this condo for slightly above asking in the 140s. It is a beautiful two-bedroom resort condo that you can't find one listed for less than $199. <coughs> that's not people like me. That's speculative money that just wants a hard income producing asset. And if you're going to produce 20, 30 grand a year in income, the difference of $149 and $199 just isn't that much when you have the safety of the hard backed asset. 
that's going up in value. Simon, your thoughts here as I, as I cough and have a drink of water here. Yeah, sure thing. I'm glad to give you a spell here, Dan. Uh, Max, you are the expert in this space since you are the one that works it day in and day out. I, I just refer to what my colleague Steve Simonton has been talking about with eye buying, right? Like uh, the institutions that are buying up houses because all the data is out there and the, uh, the open doors and the red fins and the Zillows of the world are going out there and scooping up uh, the deals, right? It's really hard if you're an individual to go out and find a good mortgage anymore because they just get scooped up by somebody else who says, boom, investment property. Uh, let's take that one out there. And so is this um, a trend? Is this a, is this part of the cycle that, you know, it's just kind of, we all say, oh, it's crazy right now. My neighbor just sold his house for 20% above his asking price, but oh, things are going to settle down. Uh, or is this kind of a new normal that, that things get scooped up much more efficiently in real estate? It's kind of be interesting to see how this plays out the next two or three years, I think. We've had multiple periods over the last 20 years where sort of an excess in Wall Street profit has led to people wanting to hedge those uh, into other more stable investments. Look, if you buy, I have a friend who owns a Minuteman printing. If you own a Minuteman printing, they could forecast to like the $100 how much revenue you're going to make if you do your job correctly. So there are a lot of people. And look, do things falter? Yeah, there's a lot of Subway franchisees that are not super happy right now. But for the most part, there's a reason people buy, say, a Dunkin' Donuts over an Arby's and why a Dunkin' Donuts, my, my, I know they don't use donuts anymore, but I'll never be able to say that correctly, uh, why Dunkin' you know, might be a very premium franchise that can say to you, you have to spend a million dollars on your first one and you must build or buy a second one within a year uh, because they can do that. Whereas you know, Arby's basically could say, we will give you a franchise and if you have any sales, we'll be really, I'm teasing Simon because we have a back yeah, and forth. my Arby's again, Dan. This is becoming know, there's, there's like 15 of them within 30 miles up here because I, I am near uh, Disney World where basically just every chain repeats over and over. This is like the land of Pennies. Uh, we still have chains like Shoney's that, that don't exist anywhere else or Ponderosa, uh, which I think you'd have to go back to 1984 to visit a Ponderosa someplace <laughs> other than here. I'm getting a smile out of Dana. That makes me very happy. Um, we appreciate so many of you playing along. This is not the show we planned. Uh, we planned the second part to, to talk your Twitter uh, comments on financial advice, but it's the summer. When we get a hot news topic that seems to be working, uh, we're probably going to go with it because we're going to have our slow news days where those uh, Twitter-based topics are going to be very beneficial for us. But uh, we're nearing the end. Sam Bailey, we're probably nearing the end of my internet's feasibility. My computer seems really, really hot to the touch. Um, let's hit our finisher here. Which type of investment, aside from stocks, are you most comfortable with? 20.8% say cryptocurrency. 10.11% say SPAC. 62.9 say real estate, 6.3 say precious metals. Uh, I put this question out there because a SPAC's not a type of investment. It's a method for going public. So I don't generally buy newly public companies, no matter how they come public. And there's a couple of other ways they could come public that we haven't talked about. I look at the underlying company and I wait six months. Why do I do that? You get a feel for the CEO, you get some financials, you start to see if the story plays out the way they tell. Um, so I'm never going to discount investing in any company because of how it went public. It might affect my timing. Real estate to me is the safest because if you buy a piece of real estate, so let's say this property I bought, which is now worth $50,000 more than I paid for it two months ago, which is absolutely absurd. But if it goes back to 2008 levels where it's only worth 80 grand, you know what didn't change for me? The fact that I get to go on vacation, and I like it. Like my income might change because maybe the rental rates will go down if the overall economic structure is down, but maybe they won't because Disney World may not track to the real estate market. So real estate at a long threshold 
to me is the best of the investments here. Simon, your thoughts, then I'll let Data weigh in. I think that's definitely the one that I would probably say you're most comfortable with, with the way the question is phrased, because you have the most uh, insight into a predictability of, of your future cash flows. Makes sense. I, I will say that, you know, there are a lot of, maybe just to close this out, Dan, there's a lot of questions about specific SPACs that are showing up in the questions here. And uh, really hard for us to blow through those on a live stream. But what Steve Symington and I have been doing is incorporating those into our podcast. We chatted twice last week about SPACs. You can go to 7investing.com, just type in SPAC in the search bar in the middle and really quickly get our, our insights on that. And we picked four companies that were presented to us on Twitter that people said, hey, I really want you to dig into this one. Can you give me some more insight into these SPACs? Uh, we've done two of those so far. I expect we're going to do more because we only got through a fraction of what people wanted us to chat about. Oh, and Dana had something else you wanted to add to that as well. It sounded like Dana. Oh, Dana, do you need... I, I, head out? I was just waving to a client that just came in. So we, we're, we're good. Um, keep going. Nope. Sure thing. Yeah. Thanks very much, Dana. Uh, we're going to get into more SPACs in the future too. So if you have ones that you want us to take a closer look at, please interact with us at 7investing on Twitter, uh, info at 7investing.com. We'd love to take a look at some of these as Steve and I kind of continue our nerdery of getting into the depth of the details of how these SPACs are coming public. Yeah, we love your questions. Working up an individual a company in live time is obviously difficult if it's not one we're already familiar with. Uh, but we do for members. You know, we take your questions. If it's some, someone on the team knows it, we'll talk about it. Uh, I threw out an interesting tweet earlier this week about who do you want me to have on? Who, who, you know, we don't talk about individual stocks, really, with outside investors on this show. But whose investing perspective would you like on 7investing now? And I'll tell you, I've got, uh, I've got two really interesting ones booked for next week. Um, some just different voices that are out there that are people I'm super excited to talk to. Uh, if you are a voice that you think should be on the program, let me know. I am easy to find on the internet. Uh, uh, my, my Twitter is right by my name, but you can also hit us up at 7investing. And that brings us to this program. Let me tell you how you can get in touch with us. If you have an email for us, that's info at 7investing.com. It's the number seven, but let me give you a secret. The word seven works too. We have both of those. Uh, that is not true for our Twitter. Uh, if you want to interact with us in a more social way uh, or want to put something on our radar, we take things we see on Twitter and let you know we're going to talk about them on this show. If that happens, uh, you can do that at 7investing on Twitter. Everybody's disappearing. Internet's not going well. I am going to close the program here. I am Dan Klein for Dana Abramovitz, for Simon Erickson, for the wonderful Samantha Bailey, who did get her passport. I think that conversation happened off air, but we may have alluded to it on air. But it takes a really long time to get your passport. So if you need one, apply now. Sam, thank you for directing the show. We will see you on Friday back in West Palm Beach. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.